welcome to a very sad day for James Bond and Friends podcast um, with the news of Sir Sean Connery's passing at age 90 at his home in the Bahamas today. Um, so we thought we'd just gather some people together to talk about our memories of the man. Um, so I'm joined by some of the usual crew, Ben Williams, Lisa Funnel, Bill Koenig, and for the first time ever, the illustrious Lee Pfeiffer is joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi, I'm Ben Williams. I write for mi6hq.com and MI6 Confidential Magazine. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnell. I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond, editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond, and host of the License to Critique podcast. And I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command, and it is a sad day because you can make the argument that Sean Connery basically was the foundation for the whole 1960s spy craze, and James Bond fandom, at least in the film sense, in general. And I'm Lee Pfeiffer. I'm the co-author with Phil Lisa of The Incredible World of 007 and the films of Sean Connery. And with Dave Worrell of The Essential James Bond, I publish, Dave and I publish Cinema Retro magazine and the website cinemaretro.com, which uh, covers Bond quite extensively. Um, I thought we'd start off with you firstly, as you're, you're new to uh, this podcasting world, um, to share a little bit about your memories of the man growing up as a fan as a kid. And then first time you met him and communicated with him over the years and maybe some of the great stories you have of him well at the risk of hogging these other fine people out for a few minutes i guess uh, go for I, it. I have to go back a long ways um i haven't spoken about these things publicly at least but uh, so i have to refresh my memory to a degree but i grew up in the 60s uh, i'm 64 right now so i'm older than you guys, undoubtedly. So, uh, uh, but it does give me a perspective that you don't have about, uh, you know, growing up during the heyday of these uh, films. Uh, the first time I saw a Bond film was in early 1964. Uh, I didn't know about James Bond. I didn't know, never heard of him, didn't know anything about it. But I was a Vincent Price fan. And uh, there was a double feature of From Russia With Love and Vincent Price in Twice Told Tales. And I asked my father to take me to see the Vincent Price picture. And we went to see it and I liked it. And I said, okay, let's go. And he, he said, no, we should hang around for this other one from Russia with Love. And I, being political, even at age seven, I said, I don't want to see a love story about people in the Soviet <laughs> Union. And my father said, no, this guy's all the rage. He's some sort of a super spy. And everybody says this movie's great. And when I saw it, he was right. I mean, I was transformed at that moment. I was uh, uh, into Bond fandom, I guess you'd say at the time. And uh, when I saw that fight on the Orient Express and him blowing up the motorboats and all that, I thought this was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I went to see it repeatedly. So later on that year in 64, uh, they released uh, Goldfinger later the same year. And uh, we went to see that. And I thought that was even better. And I think it's hard to describe to younger people like the impact seeing these films had in the 60s because we were in a pre-CGI, pre-Star Wars era. And uh, all of these great effects had to be done by master craftsmen, you know, the old fashioned way. And I just can't begin to tell you what the impact was on a packed theater when they saw the Aston Martin and the laser beam and all that. It was really uh, terrific. So 
I guess it put the bond bug in me, like most kids, like most boys anyway, growing up in the 60s. The merchandise started to come out in an avalanche. I started to collect it all. Somewhere I have it all in an attic, uh, my action figures and trading cards and all that. And uh, I'll jump ahead so I don't monopolize this uh, too much, but I began to write books professionally about films and what have you in the late 80s, in the 90s. And uh, um, uh I got to know Cubby Broccoli, which is a separate story because he had asked me to write a book about the series, which was uh, uh, a rather unusual circumstance, I guess. Uh, he called me up one day and asked me to write this book. And uh, uh, so uh, in 1997, uh, by then I was doing projects with Dave Worrell, who was in England. And uh, uh, I was asked to be on a committee for the Film Society of Lincoln Center that were giving Connery a Lifetime Achievement Award with this big black tie ceremony, what have you. And uh, as part of the so-called payment for it, I was able to get uh, tickets for some friends and my wife, Janet, and uh, uh, another partner of mine had done some documentaries, Dave and I and my friend Mark Cerulli and another guy, John Cork, had done some documentaries recently for MGM a couple of years before about the making of Goldfinger and Thunderball. So I said, well, give me some tickets. And uh, so uh, Dave came over from England. And uh, well, at the end of the day, uh, at the end of this wonderful ceremony, I ended up, we ended up getting invited, uh, Warrell and I and Janet and ended up going to uh, a private cocktail party for Sean Connery backstage. And uh, I walked in the room, I didn't know what to expect. There were only like 30 people in there and there was Connery holding court. Ursula Randress was there, I remember, and uh, uh, Sidney Lumet and um, uh, Harrison Ford, who I had just done a book with, with another guy, Mike Lewis, and Ford had agreed to proofread it for us. And uh, I was dying to go over and speak to Connery, but he was preoccupied with other people. So my wife said, go over and speak to Harrison Ford. He's standing there like a wallflower. He looks very uncomfortable. You know? <laughs> so I went over, I said, oh, thanks for, you know, oh, you're the guy with the book. You know, so he, I was making small talk with him and, and uh, Warhol said, hey, Connery's free. So I, I'm probably the only one in history that uh, blew off a conversation with Harrison Ford to go over to Connery. And uh, we made sure that we didn't discuss anything to do with films. I said, you know, we were part of the committee and what have you. And he thanked us. And uh, the British elections had just happened. Uh, Tony Blair was elected. And I knew Connery was very political. I had a long talk with him about the implications, good or bad, of Blair coming in as the new PM. And he was very impressed with that. I remember him saying to me, you know, for a Yank, you're very well, you know, <laughs> tuned to British politics. And uh, we had a long conversation. And uh, uh, I presented him with some very rare photos that I don't believe they've ever been published before of Connery on publicity tour for Dr. No. And I remember him saying, oh, my God, these, these are amazing. He called over his wife, Micheline. He said, look at these. It was fantastic. And one of them, as I recall, was him and uh, Terrence Young boarding an airplane at then London Airport. And he said, there's Terrence and I getting ready to go to Jamaica. I was so excited. You know, I'd never been there before. And it was such a new world for me. He was very humble and down to earth and what have you. And uh, uh, so we, we, we had a nice chat. And uh, and then everybody went to this big dinner at Tavern on the Green in, in Central Park. And that was the end of it until, uh, a, I don't know, a few years later, uh, I read he was doing in his autobiography. He had been paid 
$5 million by an American publisher and uh, to do his autobiography. So I wrote him uh, uh, a letter and I sent a copy of the Essential Bond book, which was out by then. And I just said, when I met you, you said you didn't have any memorabilia. You didn't keep anything from your old films and you wish you had. And I said, I've got this vast archive of photos uh, for you. And uh, if you want to use any of them, you're welcome to them if they help you with your book. And I didn't hear anything back for like two months. And it's a funny story because... uh, I forgot I'd sent it to him. I just didn't think anything of it whatsoever. And uh, I was on the phone with Laurel uh, in England, and my wife, Janet, came down, and she says, uh, put your hand over the phone. as well." She says, there's a man on the phone who claims he's Sean Connery. <laughs> and I said, well, that's Mark Cerulli, who was a friend of mine. He does a spot-on Connery impersonation. He would always call me up and pretend he was Sean Connery. It was like a running joke. I said, that's that's Cerulli. She says, I don't know. Sounds like an older man. I said, why would Sean Connery be calling me? (laughs) Use your head. So I got on the phone. I said to Dave, I'll call you back. There's some guy, this is Cerulli. He's putting on his Sean Connery thing. And Janet fell for it. So I got on the phone and I said exactly like this with the same cynicism. Yes. He says, is this Lee Pfeiffer? I said, yes, Mr. Connery. And what can I do for you today? And he said, well, I, uh, I've been traveling for months. And when I got back, I just saw this wonderful book you sent me because I had sent it through Roger Moore, who was a friend of mine. It was, I thought if it came from Roger's office, he wouldn't think it was just some fan writing to him. I said, oh, my God, this is the real thing. <laughs> so I tried to be cool about it. I said, oh, yes, yes, I forgot I sent it to you. Yes. He said, well, I'd like to take you up on the offer of all these photos and what have you. And we, we spoke for, I don't know, like 20 minutes about people we had in common that we knew. And uh, uh, it was wonderful speaking to him. And he said, well, how, how can I access these photos? And uh, uh, he wasn't very computer illiterate or anything. He said, I said, well, we can send you some, you know, some printed copies. He said, no, that's rather awkward. He said, it's a shame you're not in London because I'm doing the book with a man you won't be familiar with, Hunter Davis. And I said, well, I know of Hunter Davis. Uh, he was a columnist, I think, for the Times, travel and sports writer. He said, oh, my God. You know, you know about him. Oh, that's great. So um, he said, uh, he said Hunter would be the one to, you know, give the photos to. I trust his judgment. So I said, well, as it turns out, I'm going to London in like two days. He said, oh my God, I'll call Hunter and I'll have him call you, and you can arrange uh, to meet him. So when I got to London, um, Laurel and I met Hunter at the. Uh, the Tony Groucho Club, which is, you know, the most private club uh, in London, probably. So we went to lunch there and Warhol had all these, this portfolio of all these great rare shots. And Hunter said, well, I'm going down like in the next few days, I'm going to spend like nine weeks with Connery. We're going to write this book. Well, I'll cut to the chase because I don't want to monopolize this anymore. But Although Hunter was a great conversationist and a wonderful raconteur, when he left us at the Groucho Club, uh, he'd run off somewhere else, I said to Warhol, I, I said, you realize this book is never going to happen. <laughs> and Warhol said, I know, because based on Hunter's conversation, he said he didn't want to do the book. You know, he was reluctant to do it. He'd, he'd only been to like two movies in his life. 
and he rejected it twice before. And the only reason he did it was because Connery, I guess, impressed by the fact that he wasn't impressed with Connery, wanted him to be the guy. Connery hated yes men, you know. <laughs> so he said, uh, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to offend the man, so I'm, I'm doing it, you know. So, but at the end of the day, I, I said to Worrell, we, we were very melancholy about it because I said, it's never going to happen. I said, they're two strong-willed personalities and blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, cut to the chase. A few weeks later, Worrell got a call from Hunter that said, well, the book is off. The book is off because uh, when I went down and I consulted with Connery, you know, I, I think the reason was that he talked, Connery was very reluctant to talk about uh, his dalliances with all these leading ladies that he may have had. And Connery, to his credit, had said something to the effect of, uh, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but something like, uh, well, look, I'm a private person and I always hate it when people talk about my personal life in the press. I'm not going to drag any women I may have been involved with into this thing. And uh, he had second thoughts. I guess he was reluctant about doing it anyway. And he said, ah, you, you know, let's just forget the whole thing. <laughs> and Hunter, I guess, didn't want to do it anyway. So that sounds fine. you know. <laughs> so Connery Connery sent back his five million bucks, and uh, that was the end of that. But the, I think the you know the, the sad thing of it is, had the book come out, you know, forgetting the salacious aspects of it that weren't in there, wouldn't have been in there. It, it, it deprived us all, I guess, of uh, movie fans of a precious opportunity to hear Connery's own words. You know what it was like <laughs> to make this, uh, you know, make these films. So uh, yeah, it was a it was a strange thing, and. Uh, uh, but he, I found him to be a very nice man. You know, I enjoyed my conversations with him. I wish I was more aggressive, maybe, in staying in touch with him. But the pace of life and everything has been so hectic. And doing Cinema Retro magazine, I just didn't have much time to think about it. But now I guess I regret not having followed up. I, I did a few years ago have lunch, have dinner with his uh, brother, Neil, and his wife uh, in New York, along with some friends. Uh, not New York, in, in Edinburgh. And uh, that was interesting, but that's a separate story. So I'll, I'll clear the field so everybody else can chime in. I was going to say, Lee, we, we never got his autobiography, but we did get his being a Scot book, didn't we? Yes, I, you know, Instead. that was just done for his Scottish pride. I, I think Connery knew he wasn't writing, you know, a, a commercial bestseller with that, you know. Right. But uh, I always regret the fact that, you know, there was never a sustained interview or anything with him where he just sat down, you know, for hours talking about the making of the films. And uh, uh, I think it deprived us all of that. I'm sorry the project fell apart, you know. Yeah. Lee, by the way, I... Uh for once, somebody is older than me on this podcast, so it's like I'm older than everyone. Well, you're, you're I, only was a, two, I was a waiter at the Last Supper, is the old joke. <laughs> you are only two years older than me, so oh, it's okay. like yeah, it's not that much. I haven't seen you in a while, Bill, so you're still fixed in my mind. So that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. Anyway, um, I, I've been thinking about this a lot today when the news of his passing came out. Came out um, in the last ten years, there have been a number of actors. Um, who were like very fondly remembered from the 1960s spy craze. But in at the end, it's like, this is the big one because the early Bond films with Connery, that was the, um, that was the, um, you know, foundation for the whole 60s spy craze. And that created a market for like a lot of entertaining spy things, but like, you know, it's like basically the Bond film franchise is built on uh, Connery's shoulders. And like, yes, there were like there was Terrence Young at the start, there was Ken Adam, there was John Barry, etc. But like, 
Connery just, he electrified audiences across the world and you had to be there um, to just realize how big it was at the time. And I got in not right at the start, but like around 1965 and um, no, it's just, it's, it's just humongous and you know, everything that's happened, you know, starts with Connery, basically. Yeah, it's well put, Bill. Very well put. Um, unlike uh, uh, Lee and, um, and Bill, uh, I obviously don't really have the, the, the personal memories of Connery as a, as a, as a man. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, didn't meet him. Um, but I think it's fair to say that he had an enormous impact upon my life um, informed so much of who I am as a, as a person uh, growing up. Um, I would, uh, you know, I had tapes of, you know, uh, of, of the early Bond films that I'd have recorded at kind of Christmas or uh, probably, you know, some, some bank holiday. And I just watched those on, on repeat. Um, and I think that, Everything, um, everything about those films um, really helped shape to shape who I am. But but moreover, I think it was it was Connery, his performance, his presence, his his style, his mannerisms, everything that he he was in those films. Um, yeah, it, it had a huge impact and informed who I am today. Um, and I think that, uh, whilst there are obviously, uh, you know, some issues around those films now in retrospect, um, one can't really, uh, diminish the impact and the positive impact, um, that he had and those films have for so many people. Um, and Certainly, certainly for me, I, I was very isolated growing up. I lived in a very remote place. Um, it wasn't Skyfall, but it may as well have been. Um, and I, you know, the, these were the th this was my escapism. This was this was my, um, you know, this was more my world than the the world that I was sort of living in. And so for 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 me, whilst um, I think we've all been fairly ready for this news for some time and it's not really a shock it is is still extremely sad and um yeah i mean i'm still i'm still obviously this this we only really just heard this news so i'm still kind of dealing processing it really um but yeah i can't his 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 contribution to to not just the cinema but to but to people and 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 the, and the way that they conduct themselves and hold themselves i don't think is can be can be really um you know under expressed um yeah i unfortunately had the position of breaking this news to a lot of people uh today i heard the news this morning i was in my bed i started crying um i definitely shared the news on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I called my parents who are big Sean Connery fans and broke the news to them. And 
we had a really great moment where we just started talking about not only Sean Connery as James Bond, as this man who brought to life an iconic figure. He brought him to life. It's not just what what is written on the page or the direction that he's given. He embodied this character. And I think Ben was right, whether it's his dialogue, his mannerisms, simply the way that he held himself, the way he took up space. He exuded this confidence in every situation that was so incredibly appealing to so many people. And through my conversations with my parents, we talked about the other types of iconic roles that he played. So my mom talked about she loves entrapment. My dad loves finding Forrester. I talked about how great it was to see, you know, James Bond, the, the actor who played James Bond, play the father um, in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And we started talking about and thinking forward through his career and how he really exuded cinematic masculinity as he aged. And we talk about it a lot on this podcast, and I do for sure, about the importance of having narratives about people getting older, um, but still being important in our society and our culture. And I think we're having these conversations with the pandemic right now, especially in the United States, you know, who's valued and who's considered quote unquote disposable, which I think is an incredibly problematic conversation we're having now. And what Sean Connery did through all of these roles was show that people matter, whether you are 35 years old and considered quote unquote in your prime, although I don't like the concept of being in your prime, um, or you move through the other phases of your career, you know, you still are important. And when I look on Twitter today and I see all of the trends, yes, they are, there's, you know, Mr. Bond and 007 and Sean Connery. But at one point of the 29 that I saw, 19 were about Sean Connery. And most of those were about his other films in addition to Bond. And I thought, what a testament to an actor, to be just so known for all of these roles and to have the ability to touch so many people in so many ways. And so while we're focusing here on him in the world of Bond, he had such importance to so many people outside of the world of Bond. And I liken this to, you know, the the fan outpouring when Diana Rigg passed on recently um, and people talking about her work on the Avengers and Game of Thrones. And, you know, we see these figures coming out of the 1960s Bond films who've had these long-standing careers that have had such an impact on so many people in various facets um, of their lives. And so I think that's the best sort of tribute and testament that I can give, that we, although we are sad, we have so many texts that we can still reconnect with. We can remember him and we can honor him in the work that he's done by reconnecting with these texts. And it's probably going to take many of us a long time before we feel maybe mm -hmm. comfortable to going and venturing down that route. But hopefully I can provide people with that perspective that we still have all of this material that we can sink our teeth into. And of course, Lee bringing us you know, these personal tidbits um, and these personal accounts, I think it just helps to flesh out sort of the fact that, you know, he was more than Bond. He was a really great, great man and a great performer, but we do still remember him for, for the iconic role of James Bond. I'd like to ask Lisa, because that was so well stated. This is Lee. Uh, <clears throat> aside from Bond, Lisa, what do you think Connery's best performance was in a non-Bond non film? My dad would say Finding Forrester. He was advocating that today and describing the plot. And I haven't seen it, but he was, you know, you need to watch it. It's quite um, good. Uh, it's weird because I think that's such a subjective 
thing. And I think it just depends on where you've intersected. So I've watched him in uh, The Hunt for Red October. My dad loves submarine films. And so that's something that I connect with. I remember him in Rising Sun. And of course, you know, my first Sean Connery impression was actually him saying the words rising, rising Sean. Like, <laughs> and so I, I think I've connected actually more with him in his roles in his later career. Um, and then that's made me reappreciate the performances that he gave as James Bond and seeing just the range of performances and the range of emotion that he's given. So I think I kind of like some of his older work. Well, if I may, uh, I'd like to recommend to your listeners, James, uh, that uh, especially younger listeners who uh, may not have experienced it, uh, two great Connery performances, in my opinion, the two greatest of his I think career. I one of them you're going to say. Or in two of his least seen films mm-hmm. back in the day. One was The Hill from yes. 1965. Connery was brilliant, as was the ensemble cast that was with him, uh, Harry Andrews and Ossie Davis and any number of other great actors. It's a superb film, uh, one he was very proud of. The other has been... Uh, even less seen when he did Diamonds Off Forever, when he came back for that, one of the uh, stipulations he had with David Picker, who I became friendly with in recent years, he passed away last year, wonderful guy. He was the head of production for United Artists, and he's the guy that lured Connery back for Diamonds Off Forever after he refused to do it. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the deals was that he could make other two other films for United Artists that they would fund. And they said, whatever you want. For some reason, he only made one. It was called The Offense. Uh, I believe it came out in 72. And it was under Sidney Lumet's direction. And it's a grim crime uh, movie uh, of about a man going through psychological self-destruction. And Connery is just brilliant. If more people had seen the film, he would have definitely been nominated for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And years later, when I, when I, uh, I, I spent the day with Sidney Lumet recording a commentary for a DVD, uh, I, I said, you know, when I was in high school, I went to see the offense. I thought it was great. He said, so you were the one. <laughs> so he says, it's a shame. You know, it's such a great film and, and nobody's ever seen it. But if you're a Connery fan, it's out on video. Get it. The offense, I believe it's spelled the British way with the C. Yeah. Offense. Uh, but it's a, a great film. And by all means, see The Hill. It is just a brilliant piece of work. I remember Connery promoting The Hill talking around gold was it goldfinger time he was mentioning his work on the hill and he, he pitched it as an anti-establishment movie and um I, I loved it when i saw it on i think on bbc2 back in like yeah it's set in a world war it's one of the last major black and white films yeah. and uh, it's set in a british military stockade in, in africa during world war ii it's not a war movie by any means but it's a battle of wills between rebellious prisoners and an ogre like a captain bligh type prison guard and uh it's just uh, it's just a masterpiece of filmmaking and i can understand why connery was so frustrated during this period of his life that i think if some of these non-bond films had worked with audiences you know, they got some of them got very good reviews but they didn't make money i think he might have been far more tolerant of playing bond but he did all this 
good work in other films and none of them succeeded financially. And I think that really was aggravating to him that uh, he knew they were great films. But, you know, when The Hill opened, uh, it got great reviews. It was honored at the Cannes Film Festival. He was feeded there. There's some newsreel footage out on the Internet of it. And he must have thought, this is it. This is going to be a a big movie. And it just uh, didn't go over with audiences. And yet a few months later, they released Thunderball. And everybody's lined up, you know, around around the block to see it. Uh, he pitched, really he played on his psyche, you know. Sorry, he pitched the uh, the hill in October '65 when he was the mystery guest on What's My Line. Yes, because I, I that's on because the, I on I embedded that video in my obit for yep. him, and uh, because that episode came out the week that The Hill was going to have its New York premiere. Yeah. And he was very clear. He was very proud of that film. And he should have been. And it must yeah. Have, it must have really been frustrating to him as a young actor to be doing all this work. I mean, uh, you know, Cubby told me that when they initially signed him for Bond, they had a rather draconian clause, if I recall correct, that said uh, any films that he wanted to do outside of Bond, they had to approve of. He said, hey, this is, I don't like this clause. So, that, you know, Cubby said, he and Harry Saltzman said, okay, you know, fine, you know, do whatever you want to do. So he said, I want to work with Hitchcock. And Cubby told me that Hitchcock was in casting for Marnie. And uh, so, uh, according to Cubby, he called Hitchcock and said, you should consider Sean Connery. Hitchcock liked him and uh, signed him. And Connery had every reason to believe that was going to be a real big boost to his non-Bond career because Hitchcock was coming off. uh, He didn't work often, but his last number of films were blockbusters, you know, North by Northwest and Psycho and the Birds. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, uh, much to everyone's chagrin, that uh, Marnie very troubled production for reasons we won't go into here. And uh, it laid an egg with critics and the audiences. So Connery had the misfortune of getting this great opportunity, and that died too. So I think that really aggravated him. And also at the time of that What's My Line appearance, he was filming another film called a fine madness he was in new york filming it right and and but the ir the irony was the panelist who guessed his correct identity was martin gable who was an actor in marnie and he was also arlene uh francis's husband and so he was the one who guessed it and i i believe the way he guessed it was have you ever played James Bond 007. Big, <laughs> At that big, point, the list was pretty short, wasn't it? Yeah. Right, right. It was him and Barry right. Nelson. <laughs> but I, I was going to also say about Connery post-Bond or aside from Bond, in the 20th century, Sean Connery was arguably one of the biggest movie stars in that century. On a par with John Wayne, James Stewart. Oh, yeah. Name, n- name whoever. But he did more quirky choices than those guys ever did. Because, I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen Zardoz. I saw yeah. it. Because I, I would. I always did. And it laid an egg, you know. But it, Yeah, it did. I was, because it was like rated R, you know. Nobody under seventeen. I was sixteen, so I, I could I could get in because I I passed for seventeen, and it's like one of the most unusual movies you've ever seen. And then also Time Bandits in the early eighties, which was made by a couple of Monty Python alumni, and apparently, because one of them said this in a U.S. television interview in the early eighties, said the stage direction said that Connery's character was revealed to be quote 
Sean Connery or an actor of similar but cheaper stature. And so like, <laughs> so, so they were writing it for Connery and yeah. it's like a small role, but a very key role. And it's, you know, and it's and that fantastic. Film was, that film was a hit, but a fine madness was not. No. And, uh, but of course, Time Bandits isn't what you'd call a Connery movie, right? He only no, no. Briefly, yeah. One of his more obscure films that I really enjoy is Outlaw. Outland. 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 It's a very good film. It's a, it's a sci fi remake of High Noon. Yes. Attributed. Uh, very good movie. And I think that really hurt him too because we were going through a sci fi craze at the time, post Star Wars sci fi craze. It was very well made and uh, it had disappointing results. So, you know, throughout his career, I'd say he probably had more financial misses than hits. But he did go through a very rich period uh, after Diamonds Are Forever. Some of his films bombed, but he had these uh, uh, good films like The Wind and the Lion and The Man Who Would Be King and Robin and Marion. Uh, they weren't exceptional hits at the time, but critics started to take note of him as an actor beyond Bond. And I think that finally gave him the, you know, the respect and the comfort that he was seeking from his peers and the press that this guy was far more than just, you know, 007. So he did have a, a fairly rich period. But throughout his career, you know, I, I, th I think probably more of his films failed at the box office than succeeded. But we tend to only remember the big hits. <laughs> I'm sure right. that's the way he would want it. He would have wanted well, it. <laughs> what I find interesting is nobody's mentioned his Oscar winning performance. Yeah, The Untouchables. Uh, he was clearly the sentimental one. I just put a tribute to him on uh, cinemaretro.com in which I ran the Oscar clip of that. And uh, he was clearly the sentimental favorite. He was up against some heavy hitters, including Denzel Washington, who was just an up-and-comer at the time. But he was the sentimental favorite. And uh, Connery is brilliant in The Untouchables. I mean, it's it's a great nuanced performance. Uh, it was, uh, I knew when I first saw it, I said, yeah. I said, if there's any justice, this guy will be nominated for an Oscar. I didn't think he would because I thought the Bond you know, role just hung over it. Oh, we can't nominate James Bond for an Oscar. Right. But uh, it had a, it had a you know happy conclusion to it because I I really think he deserved it for that. It was a terrific performance. Well, and the thing was, even after The Untouchables in 1993, he he appeared on the uh, the Late Show with David Letterman. It was like, and Letterman does the introduction and they had put him in this rig to make it appear like a jetpack. I remember like, that. It was funny. Yeah. Oh, it was very funny. I was, I rewatched it today and it's just like, oh, it's just like big rise from the crowd. It just, you know, it, it was, you know, the jetpack in Thunderball was like one of Connery's most iconic moments. And so the fact that the the show staff decided to evoke that in his introduction. I seem to, re I seem to remember, Bill, that, uh, and I haven't seen it since it aired, but when Letterman said to him something like, so what have you been doing lately? He said, well, for the last hour, I've been hanging around in this contraption. Yeah. <laughs> he did, yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, Connery always took pains to say, he had nothing against the Bond character or the films. Uh, what he resented was all the hoopla that went with it. He was a very private man, ill-suited to becoming a, uh, 
a teen idol. And, it, and, you know, I'm not dropping names here, but I did become good friends with Robert Vaughn and David McCallum, both of whom told me the same thing, that the man from UNCLE, neither of them had any clue they were going to become, at least for a couple of years, a few years, these, these massive teen idols. But they handled it well. Connery didn't. Connery was a much more private person. And uh, he uh, resented the fact that people, you know, were idolizing him all over the world. He, he considered himself a, a very serious actor. But he always said that, you know, I have, you know, respect for all the people who worked on the Bond films. He, he knew they were master craftsmen, people like Ken Adam and, uh, you know, the, the great the great people behind the scenes. And uh, so he, he had no problem with the series other than he didn't like the fact that after Goldfinger, they started to get much more into the gadgets and the equipment, which was true. And he thought that the character of Bond as a person was being diminished, which was also true. And uh, he, and of course, he had his battles with the producers, Broccoli and Saltzman, but that's, I guess that's a segment for another whole podcast. <laughs> but but uh, uh, uh he never really resented Bond, just all the uh, extraneous attention that came with it. I think it probably put a strain on his marriage. He and his wife, Diane Chalento, the actor, actress, uh, broke up. And uh, I just don't think he could cope with it very well. When he was making He Only Look Twice, that was the icing on the cake because uh, the normally reserved Japanese press went just crazy when they landed in Japan, and he wasn't prepared for that. He claimed some of the press followed him into the toilet, you know, to get interviews with them. And there's some great, uh, there's a great documentary, it's probably on YouTube, called Wicker's World, a British yes. a British uh, series that was popular on TV at the time, hosted by Alan Wicker, in which he covered the making of You Only Live Twice in unusual candor for the day. It shows you all the things that were going wrong. And there's Cubby Broccoli, like, you know, trying to hold the press back from Connery and saying, hey, listen, we're doing a press conference tomorrow. Leave the man alone. He just got off a plane. <laughs> Let him check into the hotel, you know, things like that. So that's what put him off. He, he was contractually obligated to do On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And that was going to be his last one. He makes reference to that in his infamous Playboy interview of 1965, uh, because I believe that was going to be the one after Thunderball at the time. And they changed it and made it You Only Look Twice. But it just got things got so bad. The tensions between him and the producers got so bad that Broccoli and Saltzman said, you know what? Let's just cut him loose. Let's not hold him to well, this. You know, let him do what he wants to do. It's not fun anymore. So uh, they parted ways. Well, well, my understanding is like, yes, he originally had that six picture contract. And then what happened was they kind of tore up, tore it up and say, okay, come back for you only of twice as a one-off. They thought they could get him back for more, but then like, that was it for Connery. It's like, you know, well, I'm when done he came after back this. For Diamonds Off Forever, which he... Another one. He only yeah. came back for, I mean, I, again, I, 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 I hate to drop names, but I knew David Picker and David right. Picker said they had signed John Gavin, the American actor. They signed mm -hmm. him to play Bond and Diamonds Off Forever, but nobody was confident of it. And of course, it was a great gold mine the series. They wanted to keep it going. So Picker told me, I knew through all my years in business running United Artists, uh, you know, uh, with Arthur Krim and the other picker family members 
he said, if you want to, if you want to do business with anybody, you play golf. And Connery was a avid golfer. So he flew to Spain and discussed diamonds off forever over a golf game with Connery. And, uh, uh, Picker convinced him to do it because Connery said, I want more money than anybody's ever been paid for an, in a film. At that time, it sounds laughable today. That was one and a quarter million dollars and a percentage of the gross, I believe, along with the funding of any two movies that he wanted to make. And they, for whatever reason, he only made the offense. So that's how they got him. Connery donated all of his money to start uh, a, a, charitable, a charitable organization in Scotland. So that was his motive for doing it. But uh, they thought, again, they were going to get him back for live and let die. But he stuck to his guns. And I have a rare piece of United Artists stationery that announced that filming of Live and Let Die would be going into production. And there's a picture of Connery on the letterhead. (laughs) That's how confident they felt about it. Well, and the other thing, of course, was in the 60s, uh, Dean Martin was getting paid more for the silencers than Connery was getting paid for Thunderball. And but that all had to do with the back end, you know, percentages stuff. And it's like, you know, it's like, but, you know, can you blame Connery for getting pissed off about it? Like, I can't. No. And, and again, I don't want to cut everybody else out of this, but I, w- I was at Cubby Broccoli's house one day and he he said, uh, look at this newspaper article, Variety, reporting a big story that Cubby had won some damages from Connery, who had insinuated that, uh, you know, Broccoli and Saltzman had not given him all the money he was due. And he said, all I ever did to Connery was make him a very rich man. He said, I couldn't get across to him for whatever reason that I never paid his salary. Harry never paid his salary. That was all paid through the studio. So if he felt something was amiss, he should go through the studio. But for some reason, he always felt the producers were somehow shortchanging him or something. And Covey was quite hurt by that. So to to wrap us up, um, I I know this was an effect of when Roger passed away. A lot of people went to rewatch his movies and kind of maybe their opinions changed a little bit and Roger got a bit of a bounce. Um, his films got a bit of a bounce in the popularity stakes, especially in like IMDb ratings and stuff. Um, I think we've all seen the Connery movies so many times and audiences have seen them so many times. I wouldn't expect people to, you know, rediscover Connery's Bond movies like they did Rogers. Um, so what movies of his canon, we've talked about a couple of them so far. Um, do you think are going to get, more attention than they originally got now that he's now that he's gone as people kind of look back through his catalog i hope the hill which has grown in stature because it's shown quite often on turner classic movies um and the offense again just go out and buy the damn thing you know it's it's on amazon (laughs) it's uh, kino lorba has a has a blu-ray edition of it out it's quite good in the united states uh those were, were very good films i think to bill's point uh Zardoz is worth another look. It's a weird, esoteric film, but if you look beneath the surface, it's it's quite interesting. An early one I would recommend, it's on Amazon Prime, I believe, uh, if you subscribe to that, is Hell Drivers, an early Connery film from the late 50s. It's quite well done. It was shot at Pinewood Studios. It's about corruption in the British trucking industry, which may not get people excited <laughs> about the, uh, <laughs> the subject matter, but it's well done, and it's quite, Connery only has a bit role in it, but what's curious about it is that there's two other actors who would go on to fame and fortune playing iconic spies. Uh, Patrick McGowan, who's the bad guy, and uh, David McCallum are both in it. Right. So Hell Drivers is one you should check out. It's a very well done. Uh, it's, it's built quite a 
cult reputation over the decades in England, especially. Yeah, I think there are a lot of um, there are a lot of Connery movies that uh, perhaps you know we talk about um, the, as 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 Lee was saying, you know the um, the Hill uh, particularly, um, you know, as, as fine sort of examples of uh, of his acting ability, but. I think there's also other films that are just kind of tied up in, um, to a degree, some sort of nostalgia. Um, for for me, the two that kind of jump out are The Man Who Would Be King, which I really enjoy uh, that that film, uh, and I think he's, you know, it's a, you know the the two hander uh, with with him um, and. Uh, Michael Caine. It's really, it's a, it's a really lovely uh, performance from both of them. Um, so that's if if you haven't seen that one, I'm sure most people have. But if you haven't seen that one, that's a, that's a great film to watch. Um, and sort of obscurely, uh, I'm gonna say Highlander. Um, yes, very underrated. Yeah, because I mean, I, this the the irony was last night I was literally about to put Highlander on. <laughs> and watch and watch that film, but um, uh, and I wish I had now because that would have been a, a, a perhaps a fitting uh, farewell to to Sean. And although it's a uh, you know perhaps not not the most expanded part, it is a very memorable one. And um, you know his his performance in that um, you 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 definitely get a. You know more emotion. There's, there's, um, you know, you you connect very, very much with him as a character in that. Um, and uh, spoiler alert, um, his demise in that um, often, you know, brings a brings a tear to the eye. Well, it didn't uh, stop them from bringing him back to the ill-fated sequel, did it? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, which the less the, said about the, it, the, said about that, the better. Yeah. Um, but. Um, but yeah, I, I you know I often often go back to that as well because that's a that's a film again that is you know has has sort of nostalgic uh, elements uh, for me, and and is a role that uh, is is quite far away from a lot of like certainly far away from Bond, um, and also kind of you know he's having fun with it, um, and it's and it's often in in the movies where you know, where you, where you know that the character is enjoying themselves within it, that, you know, that it kind of rolls you along. Um, and yeah, I think both of those films are definitely, definitely worth watching. Well, Man Who Would Be King was well-received when it first came out. It was uh, quite acclaimed. Highlander was a huge bomb when it came out, but it's one of those films that through video has built a, a, quite an enormous following. Uh, people who appreciate it today. So you're right. It's, it's, it's a good choice. Good choice. Can I throw my, my hat in the ring for Never Say Never Again? Um, I know it's not Eon, um, and we recently uh, have recorded a, a watch-along podcast on James Bond and Friends, which will probably come out in a few weeks, and I am new to Never Say Never Again, and I really like Sean Connery in the film. I felt that he was just revived and refreshed. I thought he looked amazing in it, and there's so many little goodies in that film, and you can tell that he, in that film, is having fun 
with playing this role and playing this part. It's not a perfect film, but I really just felt his essence in that. In that, I agree that with you, Lisa, because I think that uh, I think that uh, I'm pretty much out there on my own in liking the film. That most Bond fanatics don't care for it, and it certainly didn't live up to its potential. It was a very troubled production that I think Connery may have regretted doing only because of the behind the scenes. There was a lot of chaos in making it, a lot of reshoots and things like that. But I think it's one of his best performances as Bond because mm-hmm. he was older and seems to be enjoying himself. He bringing in the, he didn't try to mask his age. He, he emphasized it, which I think was a very intelligent thing to do. Uh, you know, we see an aging Bond. He's, you know, makes reference to that on numerous occasions. And I, and I, I think it's better than most Bond fans uh, give it credit for. And I think it'll get a boost because of, of this. I think there's people who will probably give it a second chance or a rewatch. And usually with our, with our watch alongs, we encourage people like give this a chance, see it through fresh eyes. And it's interesting because when I watched it for the first time, a lot of people said it was one of their favorite Bond films that they loved it growing up. So I think that there is some sort of group who's with you, Lee, <laughs> who really like this film, but they're just not as outspoken because, you know, more of the classics, you know, if you ask people what's their favorite Connery film, they could, they hit up the classics like Goldfinger or Thunderball. Yes. It's not um, a classic, let's face it, but, but <laughs> I remember seeing it before the critics got involved. Well, the critics actually liked it. It was universally praised by critics. Yeah. Uh, it was the fans that felt shortchanged. But I saw it at a critic screening uh, a few weeks before it came out. And, um, you know, I was pleased with it. You know, I thought the ending was very weak compared to the big battle in Thunderball. It kind mm-hmm. of is, is, a, is sort of a wet mop <laughs> they throw in at the end there. But uh, I thought overall it's it's a decent film. And I, I agree with you, Lisa. I hope people do give it another shot. Can I throw one in for um, – this is a fun way of watching it uh, – The Rock. Mm. Yes, The Rock is good. If, if you – if you watch, if you watch The Rock, but just pretend it's retired James Bond, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, clearly, it's clearly the way it was written, wasn't it? Was, it? it was written that, and they obviously couldn't say that. But if you just look at that as like Connery's last Bond yeah. outing, I think it's great. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a fan of Nicolas Cage in it at all, but um, the rest of it. It's uh, a lot of fun. So, um, yes. Can I, I think I put I'll in? revisit that. I haven't seen it since it came out, so I think I'll follow Lisa's advice and uh, start, uh, you know, start revisiting a couple of these. Uh, another good one that I, that bombed, but I thought was pretty good, was in 1980 or 79, uh, Cuba by uh, right. Richard Lester. It's quite an underrated film. Uh, can I put in a nomination? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, two quick ones. One is Robin and Marion from yes, 1976, where you have Connery as an aging Robin Hood having his last showdown with an aging sheriff in Nottingham, played by Robert Shaw. So you can wonderful, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, you can view it as a unofficial yeah. sequel to From Russia with Love. And of course, Shaw Con- didn't end up too good in either one of them, did he? <laughs> no, he did not. But he's playing opposite Audrey Hepburn as Maid Marian. So yeah. uh, I think Richard Lester did that as well. Yes, if I remember yes. right. It's a wonderful so, little film. It's really good. Yeah, and then this is more a demerit, but this is kind of what like caused Connery to retire is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was based mm-hmm. on a comic book that was written by Alan Moore. And apparently like Connery, it, it was a, a really troubled production. And apparently it's like, I've had it, like I'm retiring, I'm, I'm done, but it's worth watching just for that backstory. Yeah. And um, 
Famously, was. when Connery was asked what he thought of the director, he said, did you, did you check the local asylums? <laughs> well, Connery, to his credit, to his credit, he didn't blame anybody but himself because when he decided to retire, he said, "All I do is make these recent movies and gripe about how bad they are. They fell short of expectations." And said, "I realize, you know, I'm, I'm to blame for part of it because I shouldn't have been doing them. So rather than gripe about them after the fact, I'm quitting." I, we all hoped he was going to come back for the last Indiana Jones film. We thought that would lure him back because he it had such a good time back. making the Last Crusade. And even that, he stuck to his guns, and he didn't come back. Right, disappointed because he appears only as a photo on yes. Indiana yes. Jones's desk, and yeah. it, in a way, and it's they probably sad. paid him a couple of million for that. Probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That he um, he he passed on Lord of the Rings because he didn't understand it, um, <laughs> but then agreed to do League, which <laughs> which is quite a, an interesting kind of. Uh, choice you know like to not play Gandalf but to then play a version of Quartermain but and and it and it should be noted that Alan Moore who wrote the original comic book he took his name off it as well so like that's another sense this was like a really messed up well that's not very surprising considering you know Alan Moore yeah (laughs) Uh, It couldn't have been too bad other than – or they would have used the pseudonym for directors that want the name off, which is Sam O. Brown, which is the Directors Guild says, if you don't want your name on your film, then you have to use Sam O. Brown. (laughs) So there's um, – the the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is actually quite an interesting uh, graphic novel, and it does have some Bond references in there if people are interested in checking that out, I would suggest – looking at it um another film that pops into my mind as well as we, we're discussing this is name of the rose uh yes very good rose, film very good film which I, I i think is actually one of his his better films and seems to seems to be um you know just despite being such a great great movie it's, it's not really talked about that much i mean i i i recognize that you know there may be not the appeal uh in you know, kind of a a Franciscan monk uh, detective story, um, but it, and the ca- um, and the cast includes Michael Lonsdale from Moonraker. That's true. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, he plays a he plays a. Um, uh, a medieval, uh, well, if you're American, uh, Lieutenant Columbo, or if you're British, uh, uh, Frost, <laughs> uh, a detective trying to unsolve murders in a monastery. It's quite good. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, the, it it does touch on some of the the uh, philosophical ideas in the from the novel, but um, the the book is a the book is a, a perhaps a a more nuanced and denser read, but um, the the film is very enjoyable, and um, it's got Ron Perlman Perlman in it as well, um, and uh, Christian Slater, I think, in one of his earliest performances. Yes. It's but, quite good. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely worth a watch. Uh, and, very enjoyable. And just real quick, I think that's another example about how uh, Connery like made quirky choices in his career, like more bold choices than a lot of movie stars might have made. Right, Lee. Do you want to have a quick plug to an upcoming feature about a rarely seen Connery movie? Uh, an upcoming feature about a rarely seen Connery movie. The Red Tent. 
Oh, the red tent. You know more about cinema retro than I do. Yes. Uh, right. A writer named John Hardy, who's a historian, has just done uh, a remarkable article about a 1969 production that starred Sean Connery and Claudia Cardinelli that almost nobody has seen called The Red Tent. And it was uh, uh, the story behind it. I just finished editing the article. It's remarkably fascinating. Uh, uh, Connery was brought in at the last minute to play the famed and doomed Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen in this Soviet-Italian co-production that <laughs> was a box office disaster, but quite a good film, starred Peter Finch as well. And uh, it, it's uh, we're doing a major article about that in the forthcoming issue. Uh, it, it's quite a remarkable film. The problem is it's no longer easily available on video, in at least in the United States. And Connery... Uh, was one of this, you know, the, the the stellar star of this thing, but it laid an enormous egg. But as we always try to stress in cinema retro, when we analyze movies that lost a lot of money, that in no way impugns their artistic credibility. Um, Cleopatra's a good movie. The remake of Mutiny on the Bounty with Marlon Brando is a great movie. Uh, you know, a lot of these films are great movies, but because they lost a lot of money, people think they're dogs. They're not. And The Red Tent is a pretty good movie. Uh, it's uh, quite good. Connery doesn't have a, a tremendous amount of screen time on it. It's a big epic film about a, a disastrous Arctic expedition in real life that uh, uh, galvanized the world uh, earlier in the 20th century. But uh, if you can see the red tent, it's quite interesting. And Connery is unique because he has white hair in the entire film. So it's a little disconcerting to see him that way, but uh, maybe that was historically accurate. But yes, the red tent is a worthy film. And maybe Thank we'll see a re- Yeah, absolutely. And maybe we'll see a reissue of it now with some renewed interest. I hope so. It deserves to be seen. It's a, a good film. Excellent. Well, we're hitting the hour mark, so thanks very much, everybody, for joining us on this on this day. Thank you. Yeah, thank you and for having me. We'll thank hopefully you. talk again and about brighter subjects. Thank you, James. Take care, everybody. There are places I'll remember all my life, though some have changed, some forever, not for better. Some have gone, and some remain. All these places have their moments. With lovers and friends, I still can recall. Some are dead, and some are living. In my life, I've loved them all.
us something new. Though I know I'll never lose affection for people and things that went before. I know I'll often stop and think about them. In my life, I'll love you more. In my life, I'll love you more.